Well, if you would, open your Bibles. I'm sorry, I just realized I have... Um, <laughs> I have a different sermon up somehow, so I've got to get back to the right one. It's like, whoa, that's kind of weird. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, let's see here. So that's not the right text. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. And we will begin reading in verse number 2. Um, we'll read um, the first or verses 2 through 7 to begin with, and, um, and we'll cover some more from that chapter later in the sermon and other parts of Philippians as well. Uh, title of our series right now is Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom. Within that, we're doing part four of Kingdom Culture, and, and today we're going to speak specifically about a culture of peace. And so if you would read with me. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Suntike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness, their, their will, willingness to yield, their gentleness, their kindness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we explore your word, we ask that you would... Allow the gospel to penetrate our hearts by your Holy Spirit and transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That is the end. That is the goal for which this sermon and every sermon is taught. In Jesus' name, amen. What would it mean for us to truly have the peace of God which passes understanding? I'm not talking about some sort of personal feeling of peace or peace as a state of mind. That's all well and good. Happy if you have that. I'm, I'm talking about an experienced peace. A true peace between people among us in our midst that passes all understanding. Is that possible? I mean, some days I'd be thrilled to have peace, which is well within the grasp of human understanding. Right? I mean, it's like, I'll settle for that. How many of you parents, you know, things are going at home, got the kids doing whatever, and you're like, I'll just take any kind of peace right now. But here, Paul suggests that there's a peace that even so far passes that kind of peace that, that it's beyond human understanding. 
Is that possible? And if so, how do we get there? Within our series, Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom, we've been talking about kingdom culture. This is now the fourth week where we've focused specifically on that. The, the premise of doing so is that before we can advance the gospel, we have to live the gospel to be a community that models the message of the gospel. To this end, we've looked at Galatians 6, the first three verses, and the need for gentleness and humility to lead the way in our work of restoration. Looked at James 3 and how essential to our life as a church it is to control our speech. The tongue can be as dangerous as a match in a dry California forest. Matthew 18, we've looked there at the vital importance of dealing directly with each other, minimizing shame, maximizing opportunity for forgiveness. I mean, Jesus puts an end to the blame game and puts us into the reconciliation game as the goal becomes transformed from the law to Christ's way of no longer is it condemnation that we are seeking with two or three witnesses, but reconciliation and forgiveness that we are seeking with two or three witnesses. Being a community that models the gospel is necessary to advance the gospel. And it's not the same. It's important to know that it's not the same as being a perfect community. But it does mean that we're going to have to be a community living worthy of the gospel. Or, and that's a phrase out of Philippians 1.27, worthy of the gospel. It might better be read as congruent with the gospel. That matches up to the gospel. This is worthy of that because there's some sort of congruence between them. There's some sort of agreement between them. Our life as a community, as a church gathered, if we're going to advance the gospel, must be consistent with the gospel we preach. In evangelical culture, there's often a great emphasis on personal devotion or what are called the disciplines. There are plenty of good things set under those headings, a few things not so good. But what is often missed is that we are not only to seek personal formation into Christ's likeness, but, and this is what's missed often, we are to seek community formation into Christ's likeness. We together are to be formed into Christ's likeness. We could view our corporate life as community disciplines or community practices, I might rather say, aimed at community formation into Christ-likeness. Community practices aimed at community formation into Christ-likeness. Today's text speaks of a peace that passes understanding. What kind of culture will experience peace that passes all understanding? What community practices can form us into Christ-likeness that will produce the peace that passes understanding. We'll explore the answer to this question under three headings. The first, changing our goal. The second, changing our story. And the third, changing our thoughts. And um, I'm going to grab uh, a Kleenex and a bottle of water. Um, sorry about that. Changing our goal, that's our first heading, changing our goal. I'll be honest with you, I think it was Rob the other day, I told him he was at the office, and I said, you know, I think I could preach through the book of Philippians like we did three years ago, and then when we get to the end, just start over and preach through the book of Philippians, and then when we get to the end, just start over and preach through the book, just do that, 
ad infinitum for the rest of my life. I love this letter. I think that it, more than any other letter that Paul wrote, gets to the heart of his gospel. Now, there are plenty of promise box verses in this letter that show up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or even our opening text, the latter portion of that, cast your anxieties on the Lord and you know, on down to this peace that passes all understanding. But I'm not so sure that the way they're used in the promise boxes in such an isolated manner, we often get the meaning of them, what they're really calling us to do. I offer that the goal of this letter is that the church would experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. That that's the actual goal of this letter. To that end, Paul wants two women to be restored in their rather broken relationship, Yodia and Suntike. Deeper than that, he intends that the whole congregation be unified and experience this peace from God. Because if you've got these two prominent women in the church, I mean, they were doing the work of the gospel with Paul. So needless to say, they're prominent women in that church. And if you've got them at loggerheads with each other, trust me, the rest of the church is built on some shaky foundations that need to be addressed in this letter. I don't suggest that this peace is the goal because the word peace appears a lot. And sometimes that's a good way to determine what is a text about. I mean, if you've got a certain word that appears seven or eight times in a short span of time. It's like, whoa, that must be the meaning. But peace doesn't, I think it occurs three times in this uh, epistle, so it's not significant in that regard. But I, the things that lead to peace seem to be central to the letter. What he, when he doesn't say peace, he's talking about how to get peace, how to be there. And, and that's why I think this letter is in particular seeking a goal that the church would experience. Peace. Now, peace, this word that we use in English, peace, good word, like it. It's from the Greek, uh, Irene, Irene. Um, we get the, the name Irene from it. Um, it's, it's the word, that Greek word is what they translated the Hebrew shalom into when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. So you've probably heard people talk about shalom. I've talked about shalom. And, and shalom is not merely some sort of personal feeling of peace or peace as a state of mind, but it's an experienced peace. It's a true peace among peoples that passes all human understanding, at least in, a, uh, in our ways of doing things. One must first have vertical peace with God, to be sure, but any true peace with God will grow toward peace in our relationships with others. In other words, just as John says, you can't claim that you love the Father if you don't love His children. I would argue that you can't say you have peace with God if your relationships with others are completely unaffected by that. Shalom, peace, is often synonymous with salvation in Scripture. So when Paul promises peace that passes understanding, he's describing an experience of salvation which is transformative in our lives together. That the prophets spoke of the one who proclaims the good news of Christ's reign as one who announces peace. We read in Isaiah 52, 7, for example, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who evangelizes, we might say, who publishes peace, who, who brings good news, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You can also see in Nahum one fifteen a similar description. So this bringing the good news, this gospelizing, is announcing peace. There's a relationship. The salvation that we announce is an experience of peace. Yes, with God, but in its fullness among His people, this peace. When Isaiah describes the reign of the Messiah as a time when, quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, or and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the cow and the bear grazing together, to, to borrow from Paul, uh, surely he was not concerned with animals, but with us. There would be peace among us and our various hostilities. As I put it before, Isaiah isn't talking about the zoo but about the church. He could envision a day when the powerful and the weak in the church did not destroy one another, envy one another, or bite and devour one another, but instead the spiritual would restore those overtaken by sin in a spirit of gentleness. To have peace, which passes all understanding, is to live in the fullness of our promised salvation. It is the effect of the gospel upon us. It is the goal of the transforming nature of the gospel. Now, this peace includes, must include, a cessation of hostilities. Not merely a ceasefire, but a change at the heart level between people. A few weeks ago, um, in one of our earlier kingdom culture messages, I referenced today's text, uh, particularly chapter 4, verse 2 of Philippians, and I suggested that instead of learning to how to agree to disagree, which is, you know, we got to learn how to agree to disagree. Okay, maybe. But instead of maybe learning how to agree to disagree, which requires nothing supernatural, we are called to agree to agree. I've had a couple of different people ask me what I mean by that. I assume, therefore, that there are many others who might have that same question. So I'm going to take a minute and explain that. That expression, to agree to agree, came to me while looking at Philippians 4.2, where Paul tells these two sisters who were arguing over something, we don't know what it is, but something, he tells them to agree in the Lord. Or as the NIV says, to be of the same mind. Literally, it might be read, to think the same thing. So, you know, Pete, you and Greg, you're thinking different things about all sorts of things. And Paul says, okay, guys, think the same thing. And you're both thinking to yourself, well, well I will just as soon as he stops being wrong, right? You know, <laughs> what are you talking about? If Pete would just stop being so stubborn, right, Greg? You could think the same thing, right? And, of course, Pete's saying, well, if Greg wasn't, don't think the same thing. In fact, they're fighting over it, supposed to start thinking the same thing. They have to agree to agree, to agree to think the same thing. They have to start with the premise that we have to lay down our right to being right. You follow that, using it slightly different ways, our right to being right? You have to lay down that right. And consider others more highly than yourself and find 
that agreeable thing in the gospel that we can focus on and agree on and work together on and die to our opinions that we hold so dearly, so dearly. Rob Mastery put it to me after that. Sometime after that time, I mentioned that expression, to agree to agree or versus agree to disagree. He's, he said, agreeing to disagree, isn't that just still disagreement? I mean, basically, you're agreeing that you're in disagreement. Okay, that's not real progress. That's just disagreement. He's got a simple way of putting things that's often helpful. When What Paul calls us to is agreement. Agreeing to agree is simply agreeing that we will think the same thing or be of the same mind, as the NIV puts it. And in fact, what Paul tells these two sisters right here, he's already told the church earlier in the epistle. In chapter 1, verse 27, he instructs, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, congruent with the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that of you that you are, listen to this, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There's probably with one life, suke, their soul, but it really just usually means life. With one life, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this He's longing for them to have lives that match up to the gospel and therefore to have a life that is living one life together, working together, striving together for the same things. The sense of the original could be read this way. Only let your corporate or collective manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We, 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 because English doesn't separate between your singular and your plural, we miss this. And, and, and throughout this Verse, it's all about their community life together. Only let your collective manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of, congruent with. What would it look like to have a life together that matched up to the gospel? What would look like us standing firm in one spirit with one life, striving side by side for the faith, of the gospel. How could they possibly work together as one life in one spirit? Well, I think chapter 2, verse 2 helps us know how. Because this just, as, as we slip into the next chapter, Paul writes the whole congregation asking them to, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That, that phrase, being of the same mind, same phrases out of chapter 4, verse 2. Complete my joy by thinking the same thing. Think the same thing. This is the path to peace that passes understanding. It's the same thing he instructed Euodia and Suntike to do, but it begs a question. How do we do that? How do we think the same thing? How do we agree to agree? to put it in that language. Well, that's what we'll look at under the next heading, which is changing our story. And if you would, read with me in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 11. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming uh, obedient to the uh, point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The goal or aim of Philippians is that we experience peace that passes understanding in our lives together or in our singular life together, more specifically. But at the heart of Philippians, or shall I say the heart of Philippians, that that pumps blood, which makes such a a life together possible, that lifeblood that we need, that's the Christ hymn that we just read, verses 5 through 11. To put it the other way around, without the lifeblood flowing out of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God's supernatural peace cannot be experienced. Without that lifeblood from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God's supernatural peace cannot be experienced. The key to understanding this letter is seeing the arteries flowing out from this Christ hymn. In verses, the, the actual hymn is verses 6 through 11, but its introduction is verse 5, and that is crucial. Now, let me, let me just say this, and it's just, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but it is worth the time to explore all the way. You take the phrases in this Christ hymn, they are scattered throughout this epistle repeatedly, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter uh, 4. It stops there. But it's, it, it, it's, it's throughout. It's, it's everywhere you look because what Paul is doing in verse 5, he's doing in the letter, verse 5, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He's taking this hymn and he's now connecting it to everything about their life in this letter. That's why I say it's the lifeblood of the letter. Now, most scholars agree, and I'm not going to argue with those who disagree. I'm just going to say, I, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But most scholars would agree that verses 6 through 11, the actual hymn, were not original with Paul, but were a, a poem or a hymn that was known broadly in the church. There's a lot of reasons they say that. The, the Spirit, I mean, Paul grabs that, but the Spirit-inspired genius of Paul in this letter is that he takes the well-known declaration of what Christ did and connects it to the life of the Christian, to the church. He defines the life of the church by this hymn in verse 5. Have this mind in you. The Philippians had faced serious challenges both from outside and inside the church. Persecution from the outside, divisions on the inside. Paul knows they can experience great joy. When the cruciform life of Christ transforms them from hostility to peace, despite those challenges. But to experience that life, the Philippians must change their story. Three years ago, we did that series in Philippians to which I referred earlier. Um, 
And I offered there, I think the title of the series was Slaves of Christ, but I, I offered then that this Christ hymn was Paul's master story. I'm going to repeat a few things here from that sermon. Um, what do I mean by master story? Well, it means three things. That it is the, the essential gospel. For Paul, this is the most fundamental and significant telling of the gospel itself. It's about the person of Christ, his preexistence, his incarnation, his uh, suffering and humiliation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. That's a pretty, pretty broad snapshot of the gospel. Secondly, it means that it is also the controlling narrative of Paul's life. So not only is this a story about what Jesus did, Paul says, it's a story about how I now live. And of course, the implication is he's making in this letter throughout is, and it's the story about how you now live. Whatever story you think your life is about, ixnay that, this is what your life is about. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Paul talks about the narrative that controlled his life prior to Christ in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. I'll start in verse 5 where he describes circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. By the way, I know we read it this way because we, we know the whole story and we kind of look back through the lens, but in Paul's mind at the time that he was doing these things, those were all really good things. <laughs> like persecuting the church. Man, that shows how zealous I was for God. Look at my passion for God. I was, I was persecuting Christians. Now we look at that and go, that was really bad. Look at his murderous... Well, that's not how he was explaining it here. That's not the point that he's driving at here. And I didn't drive that point elsewhere, but that wasn't his point. As regard to the law of Pharisee, that was his way of saying, man, you can't get better at good. I mean, you talk about good, you just, you just can't get better at good than that. Paul was the Jewish equivalent of a successful Harvard graduate that was already high up the ladder of success and power and still climbing until on the road to Damascus, Jesus gave him a different story to live by. The Pharisee's story was that of Phineas who finds somebody committing sin and drives a sword, a sword right through them, or a spear right through, I forget which it is, right through them. Boy, look at that zeal for God. We're not going to put up with sin. That was Paul's story, and that's why he persecuted Christians, because that story in the Old Testament was his narrative that he lived by. When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, it changed his narrative from the cross on behalf of others. What a different story. And that transforms how he views everything. The zeal that he had before that led him to persecute the church, well, he still has it. But now it leads him to be willing to suffer 
to lay down his life, to, to, to be thought of ill as ill, you know, in, in, in horrible ways, to be spoken of unjustly. He's willing to encounter all of that in his zeal for God because his new story is the cross. Take up your cross and follow me is what we're talking about here. The third thing that this means that when I say it's his master story is that the gospel story is to be the controlling narrative for all believers. And I essentially already said that. So what does this look like? What does it look like? It means that we can no longer live to be right, but must live to be like Christ. It means that success in business is not your highest goal in life, but faithfulness to God and as Christ was. It means that whatever it is that you thought your marriage was to supply you with or make you or give you, it is now about how to lay down your pursuits of greatness and seek to serve one another in love. For Euodia and Suntike, it meant taking their concerns to God and entrusting them with God and laying down their hostilities toward one another. Agreeing to agree, to be of one mind, to think the same things, which will require a willingness to become a slave rather than constant striving to be royalty. Isn't that what we strive to be? That was honestly somewhat easy for me as a child to strive to be royalty in my own mind. One with the last name like Caesar, right? I mean, you just kind of assume that there's some sort of inherent right, inherited right, to be king. And so you just go about life. You watch Disney movies, and it's the prince and the, 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 the frog, as it were, is the prince and the princess. And, but everybody lives happily ever after as what? Royalty. Right? And so our narrative, and by the way, you don't have to have my last name to have that problem, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to own some of it for your benefit, okay? So, <laughs> because we do it, don't we? We're the hero in the story. We're the, you know, you just walk down the list. And we think that way, and we live life trying to protect our right to be that. Instead, we're now to pursue being a slave. Say that again? (laughs) How do we, what in the world? That's crazy talk. Yes, and that's the driving point. It is crazy talk. I get it. It's also the gospel. And it challenges everything about how we go about living our lives. Our cultural narrative in this country, really, is that everyone is their own king, their own queen, their own ruler. That we are the highest authority in our lives. The idea that God is the highest authority, that 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 even exists, is, is anathema to many in our culture. The idea that we would serve others, it's crazy talk. Put another way, what does this look like? It means trading our own narrative for a cross. It would be a good practice for each of us to regularly evaluate what narrative or story is trying to control our lives. That internal talk track that we have that tells us what is important, what we must do, what we need. That controlling narrative can vary in your differing roles and and, and at differing times. It requires vigilance on our part to identify and replace it with the Christ hymn. And it's connecting introduction 
as the NIV puts it, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If we want peace in the church, if Euodia and Suntike want peace in their relationship, then we must have, and they must have, in our relationships with one another, the same mindset, the same way of thinking as Christ Jesus. What was the one thing that Christ had his mind on? Faithfulness to God, obedience to God, all the way to the point of death, being a servant. And if we would put our mind on being a servant to others by faithfully serving God's purposes, we can be of the same mind. We can agree to agree and lay down our lives for one another and get off our high horses. Amen? We must change our goals, we must change our story, and we must change our practice. Look with me at verses 8 through 10 in Philippians chapter 4, picking up in chapter 4 where we had left off earlier. Finally, or we might read, henceforth, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is morally excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul was speaking to these two sisters and exhorting them, appealing to them. But now he turns his attention to the brothers and sisters, to the whole church. Basically saying what I'm saying to them applies to us. And he applies it specifically here. In verse 7, he had stated that these sisters, by implication the church, would take all their anxieties over which they are in conflict and bring them to pray, in prayer to God, and that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in verses 8 through 10, he reverses the order from the peace of God, which passes understanding, to the God of peace being with them. Peace of God, God of peace. Showing us how to have the God of peace, the one who made himself nothing and took on the form of a slave, that God, the God of peace, with us, present in our midst. Too often we're striving to have the God of war with us so that we can win. I mean, I, we may not say it that way, but it's kind of our default way of thinking is, God's going to give me the victory over, and we apply that to everything and anything, not just the appropriate things. To have the God of peace means we have to trade our pursuit of the God of war. Paul traded his winning story for another story. To have the God of peace with us, we've got to stop thinking about all the things that make us want the God of war and must begin thinking about what is true, whatever is above reproach or worthy of respect, pure, amiable, or agreeable, worthy of praise. In other words, taking all these things together, what can you agree on? These glorious, wonderful truths of the gospel we can agree on. Think on those things and not the things over which you are anxious and have brought to God. Leave those in the hand of God, and the God of peace will be with you. 
You used to live, we might say, in conflict because you were anxious about being right over these matters. But now I want you to agree to agree. To agree to think the same thing. What is that same thing? Well, it's the Christ hymn, yes. It's what is true. It's what is above reproach. It's what is worthy of respect. It's what is pure, amiable, agreeable, worthy of praise. Yes, it's the Christ hymn in every way. And when you do, the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you'd rather keep your God of war, look at what is happening in Ukraine. This is a physical version of what happens in the church, death and destruction, when our gods of war, rather than the God of peace, are with us. Now, Paul knows it's not an overnight kind of experience, but it involves training. It involves, first of all, an example. You might say a discipler. Someone from whom we have learned things, received things, heard these things, and seen them walked out, however imperfectly, but walked out nonetheless. Those things which you have heard, seen, received, you know, in me, he says. It involves an example, but it also involves formative behavior. Another word we have for formative behavior is called practice. Okay? Training. It involves training. It involves practice. We don't, have, we, we, we don't have to act a certain way before living that way becomes, or rather we do have to act a certain way before living that way becomes natural. We have to practice thinking on these things. We have to practice thinking the same thing. It's, it's, and you've heard me use this before, but I'll keep using it probably a hundred more times. It's like a gymnast. You know, we watch them at the Olympics or the, the you know, world championships, and man, it just looks like they do it. They do so naturally. Occasionally one falls and you go, okay, I guess it's a little harder than they make it look most of the time, right? But that's only because they've practiced it and practiced it and practiced it and practiced it and pra for years. Time they're at the Olympics and doing it until it feels natural. That's what practice is. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. In other words, we're going to fall off the beam a lot. We're going to fall off of the... We're, we're trying to think the same thing, but we got into an argument again. Okay. Forgive. Repent. <laughs> now let's, let's go back and... Think the same thing again and begin practicing it. One does not become a pianist or guitarist without training the hands, fingers, and in the case of the piano, even the feet to do things that do not come natural. We should not expect that becoming a Christian, a Christ follower, is any different. It requires training. Richard Loveless says it well. He says, quote, it, it takes time and the penetration of the truth to make a mature saint. Time and the penetration of the truth. That's going to take practice. Formative behavior, this kind of practice is often messy and imprecise. It involves trial and error, or, or maybe trial and failure, repentance and trial again. Much grace is needed. 
but so as much dying to self. That will be needed. But it is also the only path to a fruitful life. And we can't forget this. It is the only path to a fruitful life. I didn't say the only path to success in your personal life. Is the only path to the fruit of the Spirit, which is a harvest that is promised to a vineyard, not a single branch. We are the branches. Jesus is the vine. So together we either make a big grapevine or a vineyard or something of that sort. And that vineyard is to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the gathered believers. But listen, the gates of hell may well prevail against the isolated believer who's isolated in their division. There's no promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against a, a Christian. We think we can isolate ourselves from one another and live the Christian life successful. We've got another thing coming. We're already defeated in our isolation to begin with. No wonder the enemy has such a vested interest in dividing God's people. If we want to do war on the gates of hell, we better have the God of peace rather than our gods of war among us. For that is how our God actually does battle. Laying down his life was the greatest act of war that our God has ever done. Completely turns our ideas on its head, though. It requires the spirit and therefore a life in the Spirit, to walk this out. Well, in closing, let me just make a few comments. John, John Stott said this. He said, Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. And somebody else I've quoted before, I can't remember who right off the top of my head, said, Drifting is easy. Do nothing. <laughs> Holiness is not a condition into which we drift. And since this peace which passes all understanding is an effect of holiness or righteousness, according to Isaiah 32, no church will drift into this peace. We must pursue it diligently. Amen? And we must not miss that the efforts required to achieve this peace which passes all understanding are efforts made by Groups of disciples, not just individuals. Remember where we began this morning. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. So he's calling somebody else to come along and help them. We need each other, don't we? To help each other. Paul told the Colossians, the letter that in our Bibles follows Philippians, he told them that their pursuit of obedience to Christ, their pursuit of conformity to His image, is something that we pursue helping each other. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're to be teaching and admonishing one another with the gospel that dwells in us. Sunday morning, this gathering that we're doing right now, 
It's, it's an important part of our discipleship. We hear together, we worship together, we speak to one another, we encourage one another. And it also must break down into smaller groups, one-to-one, or triads, or community groups, or some other space where you teach and admonish one another to pursue peace. James Wilhoyt reminds us, that such spiritual transformation, quote, does not take place primarily in small groups, in Sunday school classes. Instead, it mostly takes place in the well-lived and everyday events of life, end quote. Well, that's very true. However, it's important to remember that Sunday morning small groups, triads, one-to-one moments, they help train us for those everyday moments so that we're ready for them when they come. They help us evaluate how we did in the previous everyday moments and make adjustment. At the end of the day, though, we still have to change how we live. Prayer for unity is essential. Prayer that brings our concerns and our anxieties to God and entrusts them to Him, as we are told in chapter 4, verse 6 of Philippians. Prayer that our love for one another would increase and that we would abound in love for each other. The peace that passes all understanding is actually the answer to a prayer, a prayer you may have prayed. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And in order to have that, of course, it requires that we forgive those who sin against us. And finally, just a question for each of us. What is the Lord speaking to you in this message? How do you need to pursue peace? What do you need to put into practice, even if it doesn't come naturally for you? Even if it's hard, what are you called to put into practice? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ultimately, peace comes from you. And it's a result of your work in our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that work in our hearts. We take our anxieties, the things that we're worried about, we cast them to you. We bring them to you. We make our requests known to you. But in doing so, Lord, we leave them with you. We leave them there. At your feet. At your throne. And entrust you to do what is right. In Jesus' name, amen.